you are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud-native data management. My name is Ryan Walner, and I'm joined by Bob and Shaw, coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud-native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud-native ecosystem. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. We're coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. Today is November 9th, 2022. Hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Let's dive into it. Bhavan, how have you been? I've been great. Like the We came back from KubeCon, had a lot of fun there, and the weather in Massachusetts has been awesome. Dude, 70s in early November is just next level. Like The weekend was awesome. <laughs> I saw that it broke a record since 1938. Actually, ah, okay. Uh, nice. Hottest, hottest November 8th or 7th, or whatever day that was. Mm-hmm. Um, which I always kind of giggle at those because it's like, okay, who's keeping track of those? Really? Oh, these are like the uh, <laughs> AWS stats that show, show up in NFL games. Like, okay, there's a 11.8% chance that this catch was made. Like, okay, who did that help? I don't know. <laughs> it's it's trendy though. I mean, plus I'm talking about it. Like, oh, 1938? Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And almost 100 years since we broke 75. Who cares? Um, apparently we do. So, yeah. <laughs> I know we were both pretty quiet uh, the week after KubeCon. Yeah. Um, you know, just kind of getting back into our normal lives and, mm-hmm. and recovering a bit from travel. Um, but what, you've done anything fun recently? No, I think I spent this weekend. <laughs> this is this is a stupid DIY homeowner okay, thing. Like, I like it. Let's go. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I think that my garbage disposal wasn't working. So I got a new one from Costco. Oh, Tried to replace it. I removed the old one. Uh, and then I realized that the new one I got came with a power plug, a power uh, cord. And the one yeah. that I had was a direct wired motor, something like that. I'm like, Fang! and then I made like a Home Depot trip. And basically that's, that's, that was my Sunday. Uh, I think I got it replaced. I have a small leak. I, I, nice. I'm not sure if I need to buy a new something. I learned new words like flange. Uh, you need a backup <laughs> flange or something like that. <laughs> so I, I had a productive weekend. I wanted it to be outside because the weather was so great. But I think I spent my Sunday just going to Home Depot, coming back and, and working on my garbage disposal. I like that. I, I It's one of the first things I did when I bought a, t- a townhouse before mm-hmm. the, the, where I am now. I, but I did it differently. Mine broke because I dropped a whole bunch of glass into it and turned it oh, out. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's my own fault. Um, I was uh, I went back to a place called Smash It Two uh, in okay. Oxford. If you've never been there, basically, you rent out a room full of breakable stuff. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. So you rent out a room for like thirty minutes, and they give you like we we had an LCD TV, mm-hmm. probably like forty inch. I don't know. I'm just yep. guessing, but it was kind of big. And then we had a huge window pane. We had a whole bunch of like old compact computers, towers, mm-hmm. which those things are built like a brick. They gave us yeah. a sledgehammer <laughs> and I was, we were trying to get into those things and it, we could barely even like dent them, which was pretty insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can get a bunch of extra buckets of glass bottles and things like that. And you just, it's therapy. Um, nice. And if you haven't done that, I suggest it. 
as something you probably don't know that you do need. <laughs> okay, I need to just check that out. Uh, I, I first I need to check out how far is Oxford from from where I live. So, uh, yeah, you're probably like an hour away because it's okay. thirty minutes west of me. So, yeah. oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, all right. So we have a really cool uh, episode on cost and Kubernetes mm-hmm. in a little bit. We'll introduce our guest in uh in a in a little, but we want to dive in a whole bunch of news that probably we didn't cover after KubeCon. So um, I'll kick it off here. Uh, There's a number of different announcements. The first one I want to lead with is uh, the DOK, the data on Kubernetes community that uh, Bob and I actually participated in Mm -hmm. at KubeCon. Their 2022 data on Kubernetes report is officially out. Um, Something that's super useful in terms of getting an idea of the appetite as they put it, for running data on Kubernetes and some interesting statistics and key findings that you'll that you'll find there. And some some ones that I'll call out is sort of that um, it's, you know, some it's a majority of of individuals are thinking of are actually finding, um, you know, they're they're using data on Kubernetes. And then mm-hmm. there's a lot of benefits to sort of the maturity of the product. Um, and um, they, they have, they're having a much better experience of running data on Kubernetes, but definitely dig into that report. Um, you know, data on Kubernetes community does an awesome job with this report and it's super valuable. So go take a look. We'll have the link in the show notes on that. There's also the CNCF contributor survey is now, mm-hmm available um so we will have a link to this it's a survey monkey thing i'm not sure how long it's open but if you're listening <laughs> to this go click on the link it's all about sort of um your experience if you are a contributor or you know are aspiring to be you don't actually have to to be so um definitely uh useful there um and a couple news items there's a article a CNCF event about uh, running multi-cloud database as a service with uh, TIDB. Um, and this is a key value database uh, and it's all about multi-cloud. I know we talk a lot about multi-cloud here and, and I know we've in our day jobs hear it a lot. So mm-hmm. it might be a topic you're interested in. Go take a look at that. Um, and then the other one is there is Redis. We talked about Redis and we had Brad on the show yep. um, live. Um, he mentioned Redis on Flash for Kubernetes. Uh, this is actually something that we've linked to in this show, uh, which is now um, uh, the Redis on Flash is available for Redis um, Enterprise for Kubernetes. So um, if you're interested in that product um, and what it's all about. We will include the notes as well. Off to you and all of your news now, Bobbin. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I know I, this is going to be a, a, a long, long segment. <laughs> okay, and so I'll quickly run through these, right? More of a, of a rapid fire, just key highlights. So uh, I again, I, I couldn't obviously do justice to all the vendors that had announcements at KubeCon, so I just picked a few. Uh, starting with AWS, uh, they announced uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux or RHEL support for EKS Anywhere clusters. So if you're running on VMs or bare metal, you can now use RHEL in addition to Ubuntu and Model Rocket. If you're run, running uh, EKS and you have batch workloads, and obviously we know that pods don't start and stop. Uh, now AWS EKS has an integration with AWS Batch, where Batch will queue up your workloads and spin up new worker nodes in your cluster, run those workloads, and then go away. So that's a new integration that's available. 
Next up, Castin, uh, one of the leaders in the data protection or Kubernetes data protection ecosystem. They added support for IPv6 clusters, added support for a dot OpenShift virtualization virtual machine. So now you can use that to protect VM-based workloads as well. And then if you are running on on-prem on VMware environments, maybe using Tanzu and or running in Azure using AKS, you can now use uh, NFS targets to store your backup snapshots as well. Next up, Aqua Security. Uh, they have a new version of Trivi. Uh, again, we'll have more details in what the uh, release actually includes. One key thing that I wanted to highlight is, I know Ryan and I have spoken about the NSA hardening guide. They have a flag where you can run Trivi against a cluster and you can provide a parameter that okay check against the NSA guide and it will go and basically tell you what's uh, what complies and where you need to fix things. Canonical, I think they added micro kates or micro Kubernetes. Uh, and now you can deploy micro kates using cluster API on any cloud uh, platforms. So if you want to experiment with it and still use cluster API that's available. Uh, Trilio, uh, another player in the Kubernetes data protection space, uh, they added something called as a continuous restore. So like you can have your primary cluster running applications, you can have a secondary cluster, and then Trilio will perform like a continuous restore operation on the secondary cluster. Some form of disaster recovery using a backup tool. So that was something cool. Uh, they also added support for like Red Hat uh, OpenShift running on AWS. So Rosa service or Azure Red Hat OpenShift service or ARO service. Uh, Microsoft, they added a couple of additional things. Uh, they added uh, Azure CNI in public preview which is based on Cilium project. And I think while doing some research, I found out that Cilium might be headed in a direction where uh, they might become the default CNI for EKS and AKS or GKE clusters. So a lot of things there. Uh, talking about Red Hat, uh, they announced a new distribution uh, for edge deployments called Micro uh, Shift. Again, it is derived from the OpenShift distribution, but it's edge optimized for running Kubernetes at the edge. So these can be your point of sale terminals. It can be those robos or drones that you have running and you wanted something uh, uh, that matched a Kubernetes distribution on those edge devices. I think from a requirement perspective, it you can deploy it as an RPM package. It has two cores uh, and two gigs of RAM as that minimum requirement. So check this out if this is something that you are interested in. Uh, next, I think, uh, I know Ryan used to work at Portworx. I still do. Uh, Portworx had a bunch of announcements, uh, just a few to highlight. Uh, new release of Portworx Enterprise uh, has something called PXFast, which gives you like more than a million IOPS per node uh, inside your Kubernetes cluster. So that really is useful for customers looking to run databases on your Kubernetes clusters on-prem, maybe with NVMe devices. Uh, the data protection tool from Portwax, PX Backup, now has a free tier available. So you can just create your, uh, like create a free subscription, add your Kubernetes clusters, and uh, it, it has all the features that Portwax Backup has. The only limitation is if you cross the one terabyte of stored snapshots, which will be really difficult <laughs> to hit, uh, uh, that's the only limit, but everything else is included in that offering. There were more offerings, but uh, announcements, but I won't cover it in this section. We'll just link it, link to those blogs. Uh, Isovalent and Grafana Labs, uh, they, they announced a strategic partnership. So now you can have eBPF-based monitoring now exposed in, in those Grafana dash, dashboards. I think this was on the backs of uh, an, a strategic investment that Grafana Labs made in Isovalent in their uh, Series B funding round last month. So uh, something uh, that shows more and better integration between the two companies. 
And then I think the final one that I had on my list was Rafe Systems. Uh, uh, and they had two new announcements or two new things in their UI. The first one being Rafe Service Mesh, Service Mesh Manager. Sorry, that's hard to say for some reason. <laughs> uh, it is based on Istio uh, and it provides you a good uh, Service Mesh dash- dashboard. Uh, it shows communication between different apps and allows you to enforce policies. Uh, for example, if you want MTLS to be enforced between, uh, for communication between different apps, you can enforce that. And if you, obviously your apps are not compliant, it will block any communication. And then the final one was Network Policy Manager, uh, another dashboard in the RAFA system uh, built on top of Cilium. So it is similar to how a Service Mesh Manager allows you to enforce policies uh, based on Istio. This allows you to enforce network policies. So if you wanted to block communication from a network perspective between two namespaces or, or anything like that, you can create those policies and enforce them using the RAFA dashboard. That was a quick list of all the news that I wanted to share today, Ryan. Yes, that was a, a pretty quick job of it. So <laughs> yeah, I need we... to get some water now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, just looking at the last one with mm-hmm. uh, Rafe, I mean, the I know we saw a lot of this at KubeCon around mm-hmm. um, sort of the usability and user interfaces on top of, you know, some of these more complex things. Um, and uh, not only not only things like networking and uh, service mesh, but we saw it with application development, you know, build your app in these simple steps. So mm-hmm. uh, I think it's it's interesting to see. And so we'll see how, how the adoption goes with those. Anyway, moving on to today's topic, um, which is going to be around Kubernetes and cost. We have uh, Jonathan Phillips and Sean Pomeroy from KubeCost, uh, who both help companies understand their spend in Kubernetes across their different uh, environments, whether you're in, in cloud or on-prem. And we're going to talk to them about uh, KubeCost, what problems it solves, and uh, dig into a little bit about the uh, what, where, and when, and why. Um, but without further ado, let's get them on the show. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, welcome, Sean and Jonathan, to Kubernetes Bytes. It's great to have you here. Why don't you give a little introduction for our uh, listeners, Sean? Why don't you go first? Yeah, sure. So, hi, I'm uh, Sean Palmer. I'm a solutions engineer here at uh, KubeCost. So, my focus is on the the technical validation of of KubeCost with the companies that are interested in our solution. Uh, I've been in the the cloud cost space for just a bit over uh, eight years now. Great. Great to have you on. Jonathan. Great. Thank you. Um, John Phillips and part of the go-to-market team here at KubeCost working alongside Sean. Also have been in the cloud cost management world now for about seven and a half years. Excited to uh, to get a chance to talk more. Really exciting stuff. Um, so I know, you know, cost has been something our listeners uh, in the sort of community and cloud native and Kubernetes space have brought up a lot. So we're excited to have you on and kind of dig into it a bit. Um, so I think let's start with the obvious. Um, what is KubeCost? What problem does it solve? Uh, and sort of, you know, on a high level, how does it work? 
Yeah, a really, really good question. And it's it's funny coming off of, of KubeCon because, you know, I, I work the booth at KubeCon and um, a lot of people just walk up and ask very similar question. Like, what does what Kube cost? Uh, and I'm yeah. sure everyone here is familiar with like how crazy uh, company names have gotten in the last few years. <laughs> um, so one of the first questions I always ask is, well, you look at the name and you tell me, what do you, what do you think we do? And, and I, I think our name is pretty uh, forthcoming with, with what our focus yeah. is. And, and really yeah. it's, yeah, right. The, the cost of your workloads running in, in Kubernetes obviously doesn't just stop right there. Really, that's just where it starts. Um, sure. So we're, we're running within the cluster to determine essentially the, the running cost for the microservice applications that are running within Kubernetes and then ultimately taking that information and then surfacing uh, cost optimization opportunities. Okay, so if I have my Kubernetes clusters today, right? And maybe two years back, my CIO told me like, go ahead and implement Kubernetes. <laughs> how do I actually start using KubeCost? Or yeah, how does it it's, get it's... installed? Yeah. So Helm V3, right? Simple install, um, you know, depending on the size of the cluster and the complexity of the cluster, typically under a minute, maybe a few, uh, depending on the size. Uh, we've got we've got a fairly robust Helm chart, so a lot of configuration options depending on the environment. Um, mm -hmm. We are basically like uh, an observability tool, if you will. So we essentially collect metrics via Prometheus uh, across the cluster. Uh, then we also emit our own metrics. And then additionally, we're interacting with uh, the Kubernetes API and the cloud provider APIs to get all the metadata that we need. Got it. Got it. That's a funny that you bring that up, Bavin, because I feel like, you know, years back, you were just told to just go innovate as fast as you can, right? And yep. then now everybody's like, oh, wow, it's, it's costing me a lot of money. <laughs> um, so, you know, maybe uh, a pinnacle of, of why something like KubeCost exists. But I mean, so you mentioned you gather metrics and maybe a practitioner might be thinking, okay, what does that actually mean, right? Because there's mm -hmm. the sort of Kubernetes focus and sort of, you know, pods that are consuming CPU and memory. And then there's yep. sort of where does Kubernetes run? You know, which which part of that do does KubeCost touch? Is it just sort of that orchestration level or do you go deeper into like where Kubernetes is running as well? Yeah, so all, all across the board, right? So we are actually running at the container level. So we're collecting, uh, we're using KubeState metrics, we're using Container Advisor, we're using Node Exporter, we even have our own like network monitoring tool uh, to collect metrics about everything happening within the cluster. And then we're also pulling in specifically the cost information from the cloud provider, right? So essentially like, what is the node cost this container is running on based on, you know, whether it's on demand or like spot preemptible, or even if you have like an enterprise discount or maybe you got some RI or savings plans that are giving you additional uh, discounts for those resources. Okay. So like you said, you use Prometheus to scrape, uh, scrape some of the metrics, right? Uh, I was doing some research for the podcast and obviously KubeCost has a really cool dashboard where you present all of this information. Can I still use my existing tools like Grafana to do some dashboarding or do I just use the KubeCost uh, UI to monitor my cost uh, and, and uh, allocation and, and budgets and stuff like that? Yeah, we're, we're, we're fairly flexible in how the data can be used. Obviously, the, the UI is first and foremost, you know, designed for the use cases that we hear uh, every day. But that being said, um, we do actually ship with Grafana. Obviously, customers can use their own Grafana instance if they already have it. But we do come bundled with a, a handful of dashboards that help give uh, additional visibility into kind of why we're making the decisions we do. Like, you know, like what's the usage versus requests over the, the history of the, the runtime of that pod. Uh, but also, we've got an API, right? So if companies want to 
extract information and, and show it in something mm-hmm. like uh, Power BI or, or Looker or Tableau. We've got a lot of use cases around that where customers already have like these really well-defined like financial dashboards and they want to pull in uh, our insights and, and show it with the other companies as well. That's super cool. Like the integrating the Kubernetes deployment or Kubernetes infrastructure into existing tools that I'm, I might be using for chargeback and sh- or showback. That's a really cool feature to have. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, especially in the cloud native world, right? Like, uh, we, we talk about like how cloud costs can get completely out of hand. I think everyone's very familiar with that topic nowadays. <laughs> uh, but but more and more companies are 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 consuming more SaaS based offerings, right? Subscription mm-hmm. is the way of the future. Everyone's moving to that. Um, so a large enterprise are consuming a lot of different subscription services. So there's always an ask for like, well, yeah, I got my cloud costs here, and I've got my Kubernetes costs here. Maybe I've got my my Splunk, Datadog, whatever over here too. Like, mm-hmm. let me let me combine them so we're essentially a piece of that puzzle. I know, and I think this is relevant because I think I saw an article on on the Wall Street Journal yesterday how Airbnb is now (laughs) looking to reduce its cloud spend. Uh, And they have laid out a roadmap of how they are just like, they don't want to spend billions of dollars. Again, they have made a commitment to AWS, but they want to reduce that spend and make sure they increase profitability. So I think this is this is really relevant right now. I'm sure them and many others yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, I was saying, and then next week they're going to release a, a, a press article saying that we're moving back to a data center, right? Because um, <laughs> cloud is just too expensive. It, that seems to be the kind of the common theme and trend in, in the space, yeah. right? Especially for the big companies. Absolutely. So I, I, this kind of leads me to a, a question around where do you see, maybe you can talk about some real examples, um, a lot of this being driven uh, from your customer. So is this, you know, the CTO or the finance team? Um, or is this like the DevOps team saying, oh, wow, you know, we have a lot of adoption and, and we want to bring this in? Like, where do you sort of see this kind of entry point? Yeah, it's, it's it's actually really interesting because I've kind of seen it all. And I, I've been here for a year now. Um, I'd say a lot of the time it is definitely driven from like the higher level, C-level suite type situation where, you know, we need insights, we need optimizations, we need to save money. Uh, but mm-hmm. we do see situations where like, you know, SRE, DevOps, even engineers like, heard a podcast or a KubeCon or something and they kind of like kick the tires uh, themselves and then that actually lends to, to them, you know, becoming a customer just because somebody took the initiative to like, like solve this problem before it was actually a problem for the company. Okay. Gotcha. So uh, I think next question is right. Okay. If I'm an SRE, right. If I'm worried about the costs, um, I'm, I'm <laughs> skipping or, or uh, I'm exceeding my uh, quarterly budget that has, that was assigned to my team. How do how does KubeCost help me monitor my cost? Right, like is it actual usage or is it like let's say I'm a modern organization who has set those pod requests and limits and has some some sort of intelligence? What does KubeCost monitor for? Like actual usage, requested usage? How does that work? Yeah, that's a, that's an awesome question, and, and in my opinion, this is kind of one of the coolest pieces uh, of tech that we have specific to the platform. Um, so, you, you, I mean, you summarize it really good, Bob. And you know, with Kubernetes, you know, you have to worry about requests, you have to worry about limits. Although, surprisingly, a lot of companies aren't doing that yet. Uh, but yep. we definitely do see the more mature companies that have governance in place to like ensure that developers have to set requests and, and even limits when they deploy their workloads. So we actually blend the two. So we're because we're consuming both uh, Kubestate metrics and container 
Air Advisor, we have access to both the usage and the requests. Um, mm-hmm. So we basically do a comparison, right? So let's say a workload is requesting one full core, but it's only consuming, you know, 200 millicores. Um, we're actually going to charge or, or calculate the cost based on the request capacity, right? Because that's what the scheduler is setting aside to support running that workload uh, on a node. So in our opinion, that's also what the workload should be responsible for paying for. Now, the other side of that is, let's say that this this pod is now consuming uh, between requests and limits, right? It's, it's consuming one and a half cores. Now, mm-hmm. KubeCost actually switches to calculating that cost based on the actual consumption. So always the higher the two values um, when we're comparing usage versus requests, uh, and that applies to CPU as well as memory. Things like storage, uh, network load balancer, those are all calculated based on actual consumption. Got it. Makes sense. Now, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, we we actually had a listener uh, message us with a specific question around, um, you know, the oh, topic awesome. of cost and, 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 mm-hmm. and advocacy internally. So the question was more or less like, how does one become sort of a bridge or an advocate for the the engineers in you know working on platform um, to say other business and other internal business teams that um, they now have sort of the capability uh, to you know monitor costs or in other words you know how do how do we enable other teams if you're sort of you know controlling this you know feature or cube cost feature. Yeah, that's that's a, that's an interesting question. And, and, and in my tenure in the cloud cost space, this, this comes up a lot uh, because there's, there's kind of a few different fronts here. Number one, like a lot of companies are actually a little apprehensive to deploy a tool like this because they're worried about kind of pushback from uh, the development teams. Like, oh, now I need to worry about costs as well as actually developing, you know, an application that serves a purpose. Um, but really, we've actually seen a lot of teams where they'll kind of take their own initiative and then they'll they'll actually surface that information internally. they like, hey, look, we tested this tool. Here are some of the, you know, the cost insights that we get based on, you know, here's the visibility about what our applications cost to run. But additionally, the, the tool is also exposing uh, how we can save money or how we can be, uh, more efficient. And then that essentially is in encouraging the other teams to kind of take that same path. Mm-hmm. But really the, the key is making the information easily accessible, right? And, and easy to mm-hmm. consume. So that's kind of our focus specifically with our UI is to make it kind of easy to understand and but also provide all the information uh, that the teams need to kind of make those informed decisions. Got it. And now in terms of like easily accessible, is there sort of the notion of tenancy and visibility when it comes to things like internal showback? I mean, I like personally have experience being on a platform engineering team or uh, they called it a DevOps engineering team back then. Right now it's platform engineering, but having, but having lots of customers, right? Internal customers, uh, is there sort yeah. of a tendency to the visibility in terms of internal showback as well? Yeah, I mean, I'd say the majority of the time, you know, John, feel free to hop in if you have any additional insight here. Mm-hmm. Um, most customers uh, define tenancy based on namespace in, in the Kubernetes world, kind of the direct like mapping and, and how it makes sense. And that can either be an internal customer or even like we have SaaS customers, right? And they want to understand what the cost is support their actual customers. So I'd say namespace uh, first followed very closely by labels. Uh, obviously, labels raises a whole other question about like uh, label sanitization, governance 
governance, ensuring that there's well-defined standards and that they're being uh, applied and governed. Um, but we, we kind of support all the different use cases. So one customer may define tenancy based on namespace level. Uh, others may do it based on cluster, right? And they want a new breakdown based mm-hmm. on the services mm-hmm. running within that cluster. Um, so we don't really limit kind of what the customer can use for tenancy. We support all the Kubernetes concepts. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. And, and I'll also mention out of cluster costs that need to be associated with the uh, in cluster workloads that for us is is um, achievable through labels tagging and really bridging the gap between not only your your kubernetes uh, resources but also anything out of cluster for example an s3 or rds uh, service okay gotcha so uh, i think uh, following up on Ryan's question, right? How do we become those champions inside our organizations? Uh, again, during my research for Cube around Cube Cost, I, I found out there's something called Open Cost, which is an open source project. There's Cube Cost, which has different tiers, and there's Cube Cost Free. What's the difference? How can people get started? Uh, if I if I don't want to pay for anything right now, but still want some analysis done, <laughs> so I can have a business case for my VP, uh, how do I get started with this journey? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to break it down into a few different pieces. Uh, so number one, I'm, I'm glad you discovered open cost. We're super psyched about the open cost project. So it's actually mm-hmm. kind of two pieces. Uh, first and foremost, it's a specification, right? So how mm-hmm. do you do Kubernetes cost uh, allocation? Um, it's backed by, you know, all the big cloud vendors. It's also backed by um, Adobe and Under Armour. So a lot of really good uh, people in the space that are helping define uh, that spec. Uh, secondarily, it's... It's, um, it's an implementation of the spec, right? So the open cost mm-hmm. software essentially um, is an implementation of that specification to give people quick insights into what that looks like. Um, all that being said, right, Coop Cost is essentially the commercial version of open cost. We are open core, so we are consuming mm-hmm. the open cost software. We also obviously employ a lot of the, the maintainers of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, open uh, Coop Cost free um, is free forever, you know, on every on an unlimited number of clusters. It limits like metric retention, right? 15 days. So, I mean, for larger organizations that want to do like historical analysis, that may mm-hmm. not be uh, a good fit for them. Uh, but smaller teams can certainly run it forever. I think we've got over a thousand different teams running the free version today. Oh, wow. Um, and then the, the the paid versions, you know, increase that that metric retention and also add things like alerting and notifications, uh, multi-cluster federation, right? So the free version is like Kube cost like per cluster, if you will. So you have to set up an ingress uh, or a port forward to access our, our UR API on those clusters. Whereas like the, the enterprise version uh, federates the metrics across clusters and gives you, you know, another buzzword, single pane of glass, uh, to see the costs across all your different uh, clusters in, in, in one spot, right? So we really love open cost for the contribution uh, to the space. You know, I love the feedback from all the different members um, uh, on the board as well as contributing to the specification. And then, and, you know, Coop Cost is basically the commercial version that that builds on top of open cost. You know, more performant for enterprise grade solutions. And that's awesome, right? I think open cost uh, was recently donated to CNCF as a sandbox project. Correct. Right? So it's a sandbox project. Wow. Yep. Okay, so now it's inside the CNCF umbrella. People who want to contribute to the standard, I know you all already mentioned Adobe and Under Armour. So there are actual customers that are involved in, in building the oh, standard yeah. and, and, and the project, maintaining the project. Yep. Yeah, and, and um, all three cloud providers are involved. The big three are involved in the spec uh, discussion as well. Cool. Speaking of multiple cloud providers, right? Um, I think there's this notion of 
whether you want to call it sort of a, a buzz term or not, um, the idea of adopting multiple clouds, whether that's because it comes out of necessity or you've architected it that way. Um, you know, how does cube cost or, or just that the, the problem statement of managing your costs across different providers, whether that's, you know, Azure and, and uh, AWS, or maybe you have also some on-prem. How does, how does cube cost play into that full picture of multi-cloud? Yeah, multi-cloud is an interesting discussion. Now, I personally have trouble justifying multi-cloud, um, and, and I, I've seen I've seen the trend go back and forth. Right, you know, I've been in the cloud mm-hmm. space for quite some time, so I've seen and worked with customers that have adopted uh, a multi-cloud strategy. Some from like a DR perspective, where we'll fail over to the other cloud if you know this cloud goes down. Others for just like availability of endpoints in regions where other clouds don't have uh, endpoints available. Um, from a Kube cost perspective, um, we are cloud agnostic. We're really platform agnostic, right? So we'll run mm-hmm. anywhere Kubernetes runs, whether it be mm-hmm. on cloud, on-prem, air-gapped, uh, we don't really care. Um, the cloud the cloud side of the, that equation um, makes it easier for us to calculate cost because the cloud providers give us cost information, mm-hmm. right? So we pulled pricing information from uh, on-demand pricing, but we also integrate with the, the billing APIs for the different cloud providers to get the actual like discounted rates a lot of these large organizations are operating under. Uh, on-prem is definitely interesting. Um, we have kind of two different like uh, price list models for on-prem and even cloud uh, for like non-main hyperscalers like like Alibaba or like IBM mm-hmm. software and such. Uh, on-prem uh, will do like basic pricing where it's like what's the price per core, what's the price per gig of RAM, what's the price per gig of storage, what's the price per GPU. Um, but most most organizations need a bit like more granular or complex pricing. Um, so we'll do like a custom CSV where they can actually define like the cost like per virtual machine or per bare metal node uh within their environment so we can still do that cost breakdown a little more a little more lift though okay makes sense um yeah i mean i was gonna say the the biggest thing with on-prem is is how they want to show the costs i mean for Mm -hmm. for companies that purchase their own hardware they're typically following an amortization schedule right the 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 assets are depreciating over time uh but for for like coop especially like cloud like we we want to calculate costs based on the total amortization not like the um the breakdown over time right because that would mean that like well if i have a three-year depreciation cycle now my resources are effectively free after year three right but we still want yeah. to charge back the teams for consuming those. Um, so that's why yeah. cloud kind of makes it a little bit easier for that cost model. Love some depreciation. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I, the, uh, I think this leads me to a secondary question, right? When we're talking about multiple clouds, you know, the, the naughty term of egress comes up, right? Ingress, egress comes up of, you know, how does, how does keep cost play into that overall optimization strategy when it comes to, things like network ingress and egress and and those types of challenging problems that we often know very well. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, I'm glad you asked that Ryan, because in, in my opinion, the, the community doesn't talk about egress or network transfer enough. Um, it is probably like the single thing or single line item on the bill that keeps, uh, you know, the profit margins in, in the cloud fires, because I think we can all agree that network transfer costs more than actually running the services. Um, we don't have a ton of optimization for network today, but we do have a lot of visibility. So we actually have a daemon set we can deploy within the cluster that will track uh, the packet source and destination. Um, and then you, 
using the cloud provider rates, now we can actually tell you what the cost for the network transfer is down to the pod level. So you can actually understand like, well, what pod is consuming all the network capacity on this node? And then where is that going? So we can show you the destinations, whether they be like IP addresses or we recently added actually like uh, service tagging for the cloud providers. Okay. So you can see mm-hmm. that like, well, hey, I've got a lot of costs for S3, um, mm-hmm. but you know, I, sh- I thought S3 was free, but it turns out S3 cross region is not, right? Because it's a global right. service, but maybe we could add like a VPC endpoint to, to add access mm-hmm. to the local network and, and save some costs there. So uh, stay tuned there. We are looking to add some additional insight, uh, insights to cost savings opportunities, specifically around network transfer in some upcoming versions. Got it. Oh, okay. That actually unlocks use cases, right? Like I, I might not be an expert in, in, in cloud and how S3 works, uh, but using a tool like KubeCost can help me unlock and save more exactly. money. That's awesome. Exactly. So, yeah. I think my next question is around, we spoke about a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, topics around how KubeCost shows me different kinds of information. So it's a great monitoring tool for when it comes to cost management. How can it help me reduce cost? Can you help me with enforcement as well and make changes to the settings so I don't spend as much? Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it really depends on the situation, kind of the, the talk track I take. Um, a lot of our customers are not greenfield uh, with like mm-hmm. microservices, right? They're, they're moving from other platforms. Maybe they're using like something like Docker Swarm Mesos earlier on. And they're, and they're moving on. So they kind of already understand what the cost is to run, but they need some help with optimization. I think where it comes in, in more important is for those uh, organizations that are shifting from like a monolithic app to microservices, right? So they're brand new to the space, uh, maybe microservices and Kubernetes in general. So like uh, an engineer, when they're developing a microservice, they don't know what they need from, from resource capacity, right? They're going to run the workload, they're going to run their tests and then figure out kind of there and maybe iterate over time and, and tune it as they go. In 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 theory, that makes that makes sense, right? In practice, it's often much different, right? We, we will often see, um, you know, applications that are, are massively over-provisioned and, and just are just like sitting there idle, uh, requesting the capacity, but not using it. Um, so we like to take a, a bottoms-up approach with like optimizations and right-sizing specifically in Kubernetes. So we'll start like at the container and pod level. So um, that exact use case I just shared, we'll look at the uh, resource running within the cluster. We'll see what the request capacity Capacity is. We'll see like what the max uh, or peak usage is uh, over time, and then we'll highlight like, hey, you may be um, uh, underprovisioned here, right? Maybe you don't have requests that, or maybe you're consistently consuming more than you requested, uh, or even the overprovisioned, right? So you're that's that's the real key for cost savings is, hey, why are you asking for two full cores when you're using 200 millicores uh, for this application? Um, so number one, we'll highlight and surface that information so that different teams can you know make informed decisions but we do have the ability to take action. So we have a uh, controller that can run within the cluster that you can essentially use the UI or the API to allow KubeCost to dynamically right-size um, your applications. Uh, we also have teams that are just using our, our APIs and essentially have built steps into their CICD pipelines to consume the KubeCost information like dynamically set requests like at deployment time as well. Got it, um, got it. After... Yes. After the right sizing, we look for like abandoned workloads, um, you know, mm-hmm. specifically with teams just getting started in Kubernetes or even like development clusters. Mm-hmm. Um, often we'll see, you know, I'm sure you guys are, are have done this as well. It's like, hey, I heard about a cool piece of software. Let me deploy it and try it out. See how it works. See what it does. Uh, and then, oh, let me get pulled into a P0 outage and completely forget <laughs> that I did any of that. And then that 
continues running for weeks, right? So we'll look uh, using those that network transfer metrics. We'll look to see if pods are actually consuming uh, network cycles, um, and and if they're not, we'll highlight those and say, hey, you might want to take a look at these applications. No one seems to be actually consuming. Uh, this is this, this is the KubeCost version of the pop up that Netflix gives you. Are you still watching? Yes, <laughs> are you still watching? That is the perfect analogy. Uh, <laughs> Hurry, yeah, where's the remote? That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think, you know, you, your point around culture and sort of adoption of these technologies is an interesting one too, right? About sort of, we often see sort of, you know, when you're early in that uh, sort of discovery phase, you might have the mindset of just the same that you were that had with virtual machines, right? You just provision a big old virtual machine. You have plenty of space to run your thing there. It's not going to OOM on you like the early days of exploring Docker when many of us were just like, why is my thing OOMing, yeah. right? Uh, maybe it's PTSD from then as well. But, you know, I, I think that's a good point is that sort of culturally, it's good to think about these things up front. I mean, we've seen this with security and other, um, you know, topics as well as that they're often brought in secondarily and, they, mm -hmm. and then it, then you're playing catch up. Like, how do I fix this? Right. And it sounds like, right. you know, maybe this is uh, maybe this is the way you think, too, is that bring these cost tools in from the get go. Right. Have a have a have a view of what's going on um, from from the beginning of this process, which is in hindsight is always a little hard when we're, you know, when we're also bringing in things like agile, move as fast as you can. Right. <laughs> right. But, right. Um, well, see, I mean, the interesting thing there, and I, and I love it, you're, you're 100% correct, in, in my opinion, at least, um, the hardest part typically there is like, it's hard to justify the cost, right, early on, sure. like, yeah. hey, like, yeah. we understand this can be a problem in like 18 months, but like, let's get ahead of it now, <laughs> let's deploy a tool that can give us a visibility, oh, by the way, CFO, I need $100,000 or whatever the piece yeah. of software costs, yeah. uh, and that's where the free tier comes in, right, like, because if someone's yeah. just getting started, install the free tier, install the free version, let it run, let it collect those metrics, and then as you scale and mature over time, and then you can be concerned at that point about, you know, upgrading and, and getting, you know, additional features and functionality as, as your clusters grow in size. Got it. Got it. So um, and we have time for a few more questions here, one of which I wanted to sort of get your opinion on what are the challenges going forward, right? Both with where you see the Kubernetes ecosystem going um, and then what challenges does that bring on for, you know, monitoring your costs, whether that's like, you know, we're, we're trying to throw KubeVirt in there, run your virtual machines and your, you know, containers together or maybe you have other um, ideas as well. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, it's scale, right? I mean, you know, today it's not unheard of to, to have like small to medium shops running clusters of, you know, a couple hundred nodes. I mean, uh, we've, we've got customers that are running, you know, upwards of 10,000, 20,000 nodes, which, which kind of seems insane when you think about it. But uh, I don't think it would be crazy to have, you know, people running 100,000 nodes uh, in, the, in the near future. So scale is definitely uh, a big thing. Um, Cloud provider bills are continuing to get more and more complex. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if you guys have ever looked at one, but like literally it looks like a foreign language when you download the bill. <laughs> there's, there's, there's thousands of rows. I mean, we probably have bills that are over, you know, terabyte size for like a day uh, of usage. And that's, that's Ooh. absolutely insane. So scale in general, I think is going to be a huge problem, you know, not even related to KubeCost, just in general in the Kubernetes ecosystem. Um, yeah. From from our perspective, I think the complexity is uh, kind of something that John mentioned, which is the external costs. Um, mm -hmm. You know, most applications running in Kubernetes, like the there's dependencies outside of the cluster, right? There's going to be a database. There's going to be object storage. Maybe you've got a CDN. Um, so that's kind of like the the real helpful part from like the external cost perspective is the ability to bring in 
those external costs. So like now, instead of just understanding what my application costs from a Kubernetes perspective, now I get the whole right. picture, which tells me like the total cost of the application inclusive of all the other services that it's consuming. Uh, I think that's yeah. going to be huge as these applications get more and more complex and rely on cloud native technologies. Yeah. So I, actually, that leads me to another question, right? Um, I know we are talking about like how this community is evolving and different kinds of workloads are being brought on. One of the things that we saw at KubeCon this year was focus around edge deployments for Kubernetes. So like with K3S, with Microshift from uh, Red Hat, things like that. How big is the KubeCost footprint? Like if I want to monitor it, can I monitor edge devices? Do I need KubeCost running on those edge devices? How does it work today? Or do we have a solution for it today? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the use case for those edge devices, right? I mean, the, the mm -hmm. typical thing we hear is, did you know that Chick-fil-A runs a Kubernetes cluster in every store? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, hey, that's great. Like whatever works for them. But like, do they really need to understand the cost of, of that single cluster supporting that single store? Right. Like th they know what the cost of running that cluster is. Like, do they need to break mm -hmm. it down further? So it really depends on the use cases. Um, Mm -hmm. Edge is really interesting, especially if it's like disconnected edge, right? Like, like ships running all around the world that have yeah. stuff running on. They only they only link up when they get to port, right? When they only have access to those those metrics and that metadata. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't think we hear Edge a ton, but I, I'm mm -hmm. I we do hear it more and more, and and we've definitely started to hear it more probably the, the latter half of this year. Um, we don't we don't discriminate, right? So we'll run anywhere Kubernetes is running. I have not personally tested on on K threes, uh, but I'm I'm assuming that it'll be fairly easy to get it to get it going. Uh, something else we're hearing a lot of lately is like uh, JK, GKE Autopilot right? or AWS Fargate, mm -hmm. right? Those those kind of like, is it Kubernetes, but it's kind of container as a service. Um, so I'm, I don't know if that plays into edge really, but we're mm -hmm. definitely seeing the, the continued abstraction or that shifted model of responsibility as well. Gotcha. And like going to your website, right? We see a, a few great names there, Adobe, Under Armour, TiVo for some reason. Uh, like, can you talk about some of these customer case studies? How how did they uh, help you build the product? How are they using it today? How are, how much are they saving? Yeah, Things yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure which logos I can specifically talk about, but I'd say like on average, most of our customers are saving like 40-ish percent when they actually go mm -hmm. down that that optimization route. Uh, we've got a few case studies on our, our blog site, so blog.kubecost.com, uh, specifically uh, Green Steam, which is a shipping company. They're, they're specifically mm -hmm. focused on um, sustainability uh, around fuel waste and carbon footprint of like uh, ships, right? Shipping, shipping containers. Um, yeah. So they've got some really good use cases there around uh, capturing and visibility of the cost. So, like now they can actually understand the cost to support like a specific ship from like a Kubernetes microservice container perspective. Um, but um, the one the one that I worked on specifically with with a customer was uh, Kamunda. So they do uh, they have an orchestration platform, right? So orchestrating a workflow, um, and they they launched a SaaS offering. Uh, I think it was the tail end of last year, and they came to us because they wanted to understand what the cost was for supporting their free tier, right? So mm -hmm. a customer could sign up, say like, hey, I want to try this new tool. I get thirty days free, and from that SaaS platform perspective, they want to know like, well, hey, what does it actually cost? to support a customer's free trial um, of our platform. Cool use case, yeah. Cool use yeah, case. So I, imagine the, those, the, I imagine those conversations with, uh, what did you say, with stream uh, or uh, ship something, uh, with yep. the term container, you have OG container. And <laughs> An actual <laughs> container. <laughs> it can be a confusing conversation, that's for sure. 
<laughs> nice, nice. Well, I think these real use cases are, are are sort of what speak to the value, right? Um, that free tier one is a definitely. Um, I, I see how that that makes a lot of sense for you to want to understand something like that and and really understand what's what's costing. You know, if we're giving away this free tier, what is it actually costing us? So yeah, um, really use cases. Um, where can folks get started, right? Whether that's, con, you know, do you have any communities they could reach out to ask questions? Do you have pages that you recommend? We'll put all the links in the show. As yeah, well. yeah. All, all the pages, all the communities. So, I mean, coopcost, um, you know, dot, uh, dot com, you know, our main, our main website will give you uh, access to all the information you need from a pricing perspective, from a documentation perspective, as well as communities. Um, we have an open cost uh, channel in the CNCF Slack workspace for those that want to contribute and get involved in the open cost project, whether it be from the software perspective or the spec side. Um, we have our own dedicated KubeCost Slack community. Uh, so same links on that KubeCost website. We are launching a new docs platform in a few weeks. Uh, so we'll see some some changes there that will allow some additional contributions. Uh, and we also have some some additional open source projects that are kind of outside of open cost. So we have a, uh, a KubeCTL cost plugin. So essentially engineers and developers can get like their KubeCost metrics at the, the, the command line, you know, for those that are living and breathing at the command line. Um, we also have like a, a cluster controller for like uh, resizing and automating uh, workloads that, that is open source as well. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, well, be before we end our discussion here, I do, since we didn't get to sync up at KubeCon, I'd love to get sort of your thoughts on this past, uh, you know, KubeCon in Detroit, both, you know, Jonathan and yourself, what you thought of it and, um, you know, any takeaways you might have. Yeah, so I actually have not spent much time in Detroit. I went to the uh, you know North American Car Show a few years back. Mm -hmm. That's probably the longest I spent in Detroit. So it was cool to to stay uh, downtown and walk around and check things out. Obviously, had some pizza. That was nice. I've never had <laughs> nice, Detroit nice. pizza <laughs> either. So uh, definitely thumbs up there. Looking forward to the Chicago Which one, one to see how it compares. Buddies. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. We're Got like some buddies. 80% buddies here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was good. I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Chicago pie, but I'm willing to give it a try next year uh, in Chicago when KubeCon moves there. Uh, show floor was awesome. Uh, I think uh, we had some pretty consistent traffic. Um, I mentioned the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Microsoft booth with the, with the Forza simulation racing, I hit that a few times. That was fun. It was one second off the lead. I was hoping to win, you know, an Xbox, but I uh, couldn't, couldn't make it happen. But yeah, the, show was great. I heard a lot of good feedback uh, on sessions. We didn't have any sessions uh, this KubeCon, but we're going to have some for, for reInvent for anyone that's going. Uh, but yeah, good time all around. Good people, good food, really good conversations. Had a good time. Yeah, I would, I would totally second that. Uh, my first time in Detroit as well, but um, uh, not my first time at KubeCon. And this one, I would say, you know, definitely a lot more um, of the enterprise customers that that uh, made their their way to Detroit for the show, as well as a lot around automation, CI/CD. Just seeing the the progression of Kubernetes and in, in cloud native in general, um, it's just become so much more advanced. 
So uh, really interested to see a lot of these new companies that have come out supporting Terraform and um, really helping with a lot of this automation built into CI/CD pipelines. And, and there's a lot coming from, from us in, in that sense with some of our larger enterprise customers, especially in the gaming community who uh, are, are utilizing all of our APIs uh, to, to feed into these home, homegrown systems. So uh, excited to see kind of the, the next iteration of that. Um, but overall, just really great show. Uh, great to see everyone. Uh, next time, we, we definitely need to link up. I know you guys were all super busy, um, but um, just, you know, great to see the community mm-hmm uh expand and and be where it's at today yeah it was it was really nice to see everyone's uh face irl you know as they say (laughs) so um (laughs) cool well i really enjoyed uh this discussion i think there's a lot of uh super valuable information um in this and, and it was great to have you both on the show and hopefully we'll do it again in the future yeah i mean the pleasure is all ours thank you so much for inviting us on yeah thank you this has been great Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, Bobin, that was a really good conversation. I know I mentioned this during the show. It's definitely uh, uh, an aspect of Kubernetes, which I'm still learning a lot of and definitely um, more one of more of my novice sort of topics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found that really interesting. Um, let's dive into our takeaways, right? Uh, I think for me, the sort of actual usage versus real usage discussion is something I think we've seen over the years, especially when it relates to sort of that DevOps culture shift. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it happens without the DevOps culture shift, but in most scenarios, um, the sort of agile development, the switch to DevOps, and changing that mindset of you know consuming and deploying VMs versus containers is a challenge. Um, I know this is something that often goes overlooked when deploying containers, at least early in that journey, meaning that you'll just over-provision so that your application doesn't run out of memory or doesn't run Mm -hmm. out of CPU. Something that folks are used to doing with virtual machines, I think, and kind of getting away with it because it's more acceptable, maybe. Um, But that real usage and actual usage, it's also something that's not necessarily ideally clear uh, and and understandable, meaning that if you deploy with quotas, you're probably going to wind up, you know, OOMing your application <laughs> at some point because uh, nothing's really doing anything to monitor the uh, real time uh, usage of those things, unless you have those things set up. And, yeah. and there's just a lot of moving pieces. So I think it's a really uh, good insight. And, and to their point, is there, is there one of the first places to look, right? Um, and then the other thing was the challenges around sort of that full optimization story, right? So not just what the containers are consuming and how to schedule them and pack them correctly on the nodes, but really what's external to Kubernetes, right? What are you consuming when it comes to like snapshots or S3 yeah. or, or, or egress? I know you had some points you wanted to make on egress. I know, e- egress was interesting, right? Like, I like how they have handled that scenario where they said, 
they actually run a daemon set on all nodes of your cluster so they can monitor traffic and see uh, how much you might be uh, paying for all of the communication between different clusters so that was definitely something that was interesting uh, i didn't expect them to have that capability because they were focused on kubernetes cost optimization and monitoring but uh, having this capability should give customers like an end to end overview of how much money they're spending in these environments uh, the the next thing was around open cost right how open cost is still available as a cncf sandbox project still available as an open source project so uh, customers who are not ready to pay that $100,000, right? I don't know how much cube cost costs, but let's use 100000 as a random number, like not ready to pay that $100,000 worth of uh, licenses for monitoring their cost on Kubernetes. They can get started uh, using open cost, get a feel for uh, how things are, how they can optimize their applications from day one, rather than going 18 months down the line and then trying to shift left and, and introduce cost management from, from day 365. So, uh, or try <laughs> start using something like open cost or the cube cost free tier uh, as you're building those applications, as you're deploying things on Kubernetes. And then in the future, right, if you need that multi-cluster management that cube cost paid tier offers, you can think about moving to that point. But having something that's free and open source definitely reduces the barrier to entry. Absolutely. So um, as always, we will include all of the links mentioned in mm -hmm. today's podcast which is you know cube cost how to install it open cost some of the case studies etc and we all will the different also, news articles we covered yeah all <laughs> the different news articles we covered um also you know just good job on that Bob. oh yeah, thank a you lot of, yeah. lot of news. <laughs> hard to cover it all yeah. and uh as always please do review our podcast whether that's on um apple podcasts or wherever you review and listen to your podcasts we encourage you to send us messages and or review us. It really helps us out or send us some options for what you'd like to hear. Today's mm -hmm. episode was actually stemmed from one of our listeners. So thank you very much to talk more about cost and Kubernetes. So without further ado, that brings us to the end of today's episode. I'm Ryan. I'm Pavin. And thanks for joining another episode of Kubernetes Bytes. Thank you for listening to the Kubernetes Bytes podcast. 